Something very powerful about being still before God, isn't there? Um, that, that was one minute of just being still, and we're rubbish at it, aren't we? <laughs> one minute, and it feels like ages, and you're probably some of you are thinking, so when's he going to pray? One minute of being still. How wonderful it would be if we could have five minutes in a day where we can just be still before God. Um, we're going to come to think tonight about prayer, and I think some of the reasons why we find prayer difficult is because we're rubbish at being still. And while we're rushing, uh, we can't focus, and when we can't focus, we can't really pray. Um, so I commend to you being still this week, and I speak that to myself as much as to each of you. Um, but we're going to come before the Lord tonight, looking at this uh, idea of battling um, in prayer in a world of self-reliance. Uh, actually, just the last couple of hours have been a great answer to prayer. I went for a walk with Steph up kind of Chilton and Dawson Way this afternoon, and we sat on a bench, and we were praying about a few things. And I was feeling quite discouraged, and uh, Steph prayed for me tonight. And then I got home to kind of still my heart before this sermon. I was really struggling to focus and pray. Um, so I rang up a friend of mine in the village, and we just walked around the village uh, praying for tonight, praying for us, praying for you. Um, and then it's really helped lift my spirits and God's answered very specific prayers. There's some people who are sitting here uh, this evening who we were praying for who are here now and perhaps wouldn't have been here. And so just the last two hours, it's my little testimony of prayer working and I I didn't want to pray two hours ago. So I I encourage you with that and we're going to think about this subject tonight. Um, So the first slide will pop up. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, Battling in prayer in a world of of self-reliance. So the questions we're going to be thinking about tonight, um, why do so many of us find prayer so difficult? Um, How do we persevere with prayer? Uh, Looking out across those who are here tonight, I'm aware there are people who are struggling with unemployment, struggling with illness, struggling with discouragement, um, struggling with relational struggles, uh, work situations. And so I'm sure for many of us, unanswered prayer is a real burden that we carry. And we're going to have a little think about that tonight as we look at this story in the book of Judges. And then I guess the ultimate aim, as I've said at the start of each of these little talks, is to lift our eyes. I pray, really pray, that tonight we would leave here encouraged. I'm not beaten up, not discouraged, but encouraged to pray more fervently. And I guess prayer for us here and for Cornerstone Church, um, how can we help each other to be more fervent in prayer and for prayer to be a real bedrock of, of our churches? Um, just to say, one, one book a lot of people talk about in this area of unanswered prayer is this one. It's, I think it's on our bookstall, um, God on Mute. Uh, it is a really good book. It's good in the sense that it, it really resonates with the heart of someone who prays and doesn't always see their prayers answered. Um, so I would commend it to you. The only reservation with it is it's very weak on the sovereignty of God and says very little about that. And so as you read this, just be aware there's much to, to, to hold side by side on the sovereignty of God, which the book doesn't really address. So I wouldn't say that this book is the very best thing on the subject, but a number of you have spoken to me about it, and it is a good book worth reading. Um, but just be aware that it's not um, the, the clearest on the sovereignty of God. Uh, but these are some questions. What I'd love to do to begin with, just for a few of you to shout out, um, just some little buzzwords uh, to answer this question. I'll come and scribble up some words, because I'd love you to reflect on these things through this evening. So what I'd love you to do is just shout out, try and be as honest as you can and succinct as you can. What are some of the things that cause prayer to be so difficult for us? Let's see if we can get 10 or 20 things just on the page. Busyness. Yep, distractions. Thank you. Keep going. Good, we get tired. Uh, Knowing how. Yep, priorities. Uh, Yep, the whole sort of idea of results. 
yeah, disconnected from God or from people. Yeah, it's just hard to uh, just sort of focus and concentration. That's exactly my experience tonight. Hot weather, long day, couldn't focus. Had to get out for a walk and pray instead. Noise, yeah. Unsettled hearts. Yes, it's the sort of idea of, of distraction and sort of restlessness. Uh, yeah, privacy, noise. Privacy is hard, I guess, in, in homes with um, big families. Um, or maybe you're in a home where you're married to someone who's not a Christian. It's difficult to sort of pull yourself away to pray. I guess that can come out in all sorts of ways, can't it? Doubt. Yeah, thanks for being honest. I was hoping someone would say that. Yeah, it might apply to somebody, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Sorry, my writing's awful, my handwriting's even worse, and my spelling's terrible, but there we go. Submission. It's hard to submit, isn't it, sometimes to the will of God. That's why unanswered prayer can be such a battle sometimes, because my desires for my life and my prayers being answered may often be different to God's. Yeah, unbelief. You do not have because you do not ask, that sort of stuff. How many would say that's true when you've had a rubbish day or some sin you're really aware of in your life, you think, I don't deserve to pray, or you feel you can't, yeah. Yes, yeah, so it's a sort of idea of patience, isn't it? Yeah, short-term patience. Um, I've run out of space, and um, that gives us an idea. But there are so many different things, aren't there, that um, make prayer difficult for us. These are very realistic things, and I suspect, actually, if we were honest and you thought about your own life, you could probably tick every one of them as going, for me, that is something that I wrestle with. Um, I could definitely tick all of those and probably list another 20. Uh, prayer is really tough. So we're going to look at the book of Judges. So if we turn to the book of Judges in your Bible... Uh, it's a great little story. I want to give us a little bit of context because we're jumping into a book we may not be familiar with. And, um, so set the scene. I'm just going to give you a few verses. You can flick through if it helps you just to follow. Otherwise, you can just listen in. But know that at the beginning of the book of Judges, chapter 1, verse 1, uh, Joshua, who with Caleb led God's people into the promised land, he's now died. So the baton's been handed over. Um, come to chapter 2, verse 10. Um, after that, a whole generation had been. Ga- after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what He had done. And so, the context is the godlessness of God's people. They've forgotten again who He is. So we're entering into a period of history that is godless and very sad. Judges is a terribly sad book. Repeated cycles of decline. So we come to a place where God's people are in a, in a real mess. Remember, when they got into the promised land, it was a, a land full of promise. There were these false gods that offered so much. It was a land full of milk and honey. It was plentiful. And all of the foreign nations that were living in the land had different gods who became idols for God's people. And they kind of got sucked in and were living for the things that the people in the promised land lived for. And so the place that, remember, when God promised Abraham a place to live in, it would be a place of blessing. It became a place of slavery because this place that was meant to free them, enslave them, and took their eyes off God. So we get in our uh, study of, of Judges to a very sad point in the history of God's people. Uh, if you flick over to verse 16, we then read, Then the Lord raised up judges. Uh, the judges were kind of temporary rescuers who were sent to God's people to deliver them from their enemies. There were 12 in all, and Gideon, who's the character we're looking at tonight, is number five. Uh, Some of the judges were better than others, some were terrible, but each of them were flawed in different ways. But we get to judge number five. Uh, Don't think judge with a kind of funny wig in a court. It's not like that. It's more uh, a person, a man or a woman, who God sent to be a judge over God's people and to draw them back to himself. And Gideon is judge number five. 
And then to bookend it, go to the very end of the book of Judges to a verse you might know, chapter 21. And verse 25, and it's a kind of summary of what's going on through all these repeated cycles of misery in the book of Judges. Uh, We read in chapter 21, verse 25, in those days, Israel, that's God's people, had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. So the book starts with godlessness and a generation that grew up who didn't know God. And the book ends with continued godlessness. It's a very, very depressing book. Uh, And so we meet Gideon kind of in the middle of this book. uh, And we're going to look at... Uh, the story of um, how he led God's people. So we'll go back to Judges chapter 6, and we're going to spend some time tonight in 6, 7, and 8, looking at different bits. Um, uh, Wellesley's going to read um, with a lollipop mic from where he's sitting, and let's uh, read together Judges chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys." They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them on their camels or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Okay, so think of where we are. We're in the promised land, this place that's meant to be blessing. We've got God's people here hiding in caves because they're fearing for their life. Everything that God promised through Abraham doesn't seem to be happening. Um, But the key thing, and go back to verse 1, as you'll see on your little hand out there, what was the problem? What was the problem going on for God's people? If you could sum it up in a sentence. Self-reliance. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They took their eyes off him. And so everything they're going through that is causing them struggle is ultimately rooted in an unbelief, in in failing to trust in him. And then we go on in verses 7 to 10. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. So do you see, who was it who delivered God's people from Egypt? God. He is the great rescuer. He is their Lord. And what have they done? They've all failed to listen to him. And so what you get here in in the book of Judges is this very vivid picture of self-reliance. God's people have got to the land and they kind of said, oh, thank you, God, for rescuing me. You've bailed me out of my problem. Now it's my life and I'll live as I please. And so they get sucked into this godless living. I wonder if you reflect on some of the things on the flip chart. Why do we find prayer so difficult? If you're very honest with yourself, how many of those things are rooted ultimately in self-reliance? It's easy, sometimes it's easier to pray when uh, life is difficult. Perhaps sometimes it's not. 
Uh, But generally speaking, we can be quite quick to call out to God when life is not going well. But when life is going better, it's very, very easy to become self-reliant. And while you've got this story in the book of Judges, it's to hold a mirror up to our faces going, be very careful because look what happened to God's people. They got into the land, they thought that they were sorted and they didn't need their great rescuing God. And actually many of these things that we've listed that are struggles and, and things that we find hard then to pray, reasons we find hard to pray, are rooted in different ways in our self-reliance. As I was walking earlier and praying, we were discussing why prayer is so difficult and why it's such a spiritual battle. And because of what prayer is, if, if in many ways prayer is turning our eyes back to God in reliance upon him, if that is what prayer ultimately is, you and I shouldn't be surprised that we battle in prayer so much. Um, Satan hates it when we pray. Satan hates it when we pray. I was reading something this week that really challenged me, and I shared this with someone else this week. Uh, when we pray, when we're engaging in spiritual realities, when we're, you know, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, the authorities in heavenly places. That's what we learned uh, in our first week in this series. If we're really engaging in these spiritual realities, the writer said, what happens is it unleashes a hornet's nest in hell. While we just go about our lives engaging in our own desires and what we're doing, and when we're not really thinking about spiritual realities, when we're disengaged from things eternal, the devil's not that bothered. He just goes, busy Christians, great. I love busy Christians. Because guess what? Busy Christians often aren't prayerful Christians. What causes a hornet's nest to be stirred up in hell is when people pray. And whether that's the fervent prayer of all-night prayer as a group gather or the quiet prayer of a small child as they kneel beside their bed at night and thank God for the day. All prayer, in all its different forms, is incredibly powerful, and the devil hates it. And so actually, we shouldn't be surprised that we find prayer so difficult. It's not just a reflection of our own weaknesses, though that is true. It's also a reflection of a spiritual reality that the devil wants to do everything he can to stop us praying. And actually, if you look at some of these things that we've listed here, in some ways, can you see how the devil gets in? I love to be busy, and the devil loves me to be busy, because when I'm busy, I don't pray. And so every time I sign up to do another thing, sometimes I imagine the devil is licking his lips and putting his hands together, saying, brilliant, one of the pastors of the church is busy. But he's not praying. And that's a real conviction uh, for me. So come to our little handout there, and I want to work through this together. It's a problem we all face. I'm sure we can admit that. But I want us to work through the story of Gideon to see how, in the life of Gideon, this is worked out. And then we're going to come to think about how we can respond. So come to chapter 6. And I'm going to read um, verses 13 to 14. So Gideon here is complaining, saying to God, uh, why are we being oppressed by our enemies? And he says, but sir, speaking to God, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our father told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Then come to verse 15. What mistake does Gideon make in verse 15? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? What's the mistake he makes? How can I save Israel? His problem, his mistake is self-reliance. 
And yet that's funny, isn't it? Because look at how God described Gideon back in verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord has just called Gideon a mighty warrior. And yet how does Gideon describe himself in the second half of verse 15? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. God has just described him as a mighty warrior. Gideon says, I'm weak and pathetic and part of a weak and pathetic people. So what is God doing when he says in verse 14, go in the strength you have? In that context, what is the strength that Gideon has that God is alluding to? He's sent by God. You see in verse 14, go in the strength you have, but be careful. That's not your strength that you possess as an individual. Go in the strength you have and save Israel. Am I not sending you? That is where the strength comes. There's so many examples in the scriptures where God's people are sent into battle, sent to do something amazing, and their strength every single time is in the God who sends them, not in the strength of the person who has been sent. And so the problem we all face is that sometimes God says, go, do something, be faithful, live for me, and you go, I can't, I'm weak. And God says, you're a warrior. But your strength is not your strength. Your strength is God in you. And that is something we so often forget. Uh, you'll be familiar with uh, these words. The first one, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. I, I've put in a paraphrase because without the wider context, it's kind of hard to understand. But paraphrased, it, it's a great verse that says, where God speaks and says, my power is most fully displayed when my people are weak. I find as a Christian and, and as a pastor, every day I feel weak. I feel inadequate. I feel I can't do what I've been called to do. And regularly I have to come back to this verse. And actually it's a great encouragement. I need to come back to it more regularly. My power, God says, is fully displayed when my people are weak. I hate being weak. But God says that's when I'll be most powerful in your life. And prayer is a great expression of weakness, isn't it? Because when I'm not doing and when I'm praying... I'm depending on a God who does do. And then in Hebrews 11, you'll know the, the, the passage where it's a kind of hall of fame where God is drawing attention to people, men and women of faith. And Gideon is listed alongside a, a heap of other people who have exp- expressed faith in the living God. And as Gideon's name is mentioned, we read whose weakness was turned to strength. And so I want you to look again at this list of weakness that you suffer from, weakness I suffer from, And I want you to be encouraged tonight as you look at this list of things you struggle with. That is a display of your weakness and my weakness. But what do the verses on the screen encourage us with? When we are weak, he is strong. If we remember that his strength working in us is where our strength comes from. My strength is not my ability to fight these things that I'm weak at. It's not about me knuckling down and trying harder. My strength comes from saying, I can't do it, but you can which is why it was wonderful this afternoon to come and walk with a friend who was able to encourage me and pray with me and for me to lift my eyes to the living God because without that, I would have got caught up in my own inability to come out tonight and preach. But God is strong. Just as a little aside, we've got to be a little bit careful as Christians not to misunderstand this word weakness. Sometimes we can be the cause of our own weakness. Of course, we've seen self-reliance and pride can be a cause of our weakness. Uh, disunity in the church and grumbling can hugely weaken us as a church and weaken our prayers. Uh, apathy, as someone admitted to it, we can be very lazy. 
that creates weakness. Sometimes too, as Christians, we can be a little bit sloppy. We can be a bit lazy, almost a sort of unhelpful attitude of kind of, let go and let God. It kind of doesn't really matter. God wants us to display integrity. He wants us to work as hard as we can. He wants us to use our gifts. He wants us to hold one another accountable. He wants us to challenge mediocrity and to be the best that we can be as a church. So weakness here is not sloppiness. It's not kind of, we can just be pathetic Christians because at the end of the day we've got a great God. Weakness here is very specifically an acknowledgement of our need for God. An acknowledgement of our need for God. So here's a question for us. Do you as an individual, and let's make it more corporate, do we as a church, do we acknowledge our need for God? I know theoretically, I know theologically, we'd all go, yes, we do. But do we? And if not, why not? Because actually this gets to the very crux of the issue. If I really believe that I am powerless without the Lord God, if weakness is about acknowledging my need for God, why do I so frequently not acknowledge my need for God? Let's throw it out again as we reflect on some of the things on the the board here. Just shout out a few things. How could we tell if we were a church that really, really believed and acknowledged our need for God? I mean, there'll be some very obvious things which you'll shout out. That's great to hear. There'll perhaps be some more subtle things. Let's just shout out a few things. How can we tell if we're really able to acknowledge our need for God? Let's have the obvious ones. Yeah, that's a great thing. So having people here is a good sign that we want to come and learn and to grow. And that's a real encouragement. So I'm not sharing these things to embitter us or to to beat us up. There are lots of encouragements along the way. Um, But do we have a hunger to want to gather as God's people, particularly in a warm summer's night when a lot of us might just want to sit at home and watch the TV or sit out in the garden? Do we have a hunger for God's people? Uh, There was a wonderful prayer meeting here the Tuesday after our weekend away when we came away with a bigger vision of God and we gathered and it was one of the best prayer meetings we've had here. Why? Because at that weekend away, our eyes were lifted to the living God and people wanted to be here. I suspect it wasn't any different in terms of busyness and priorities than any other week. But God's spirit was moving people to come and pray. I encourage you to pray. So a few other things. Brilliant. We're going to come to that in a moment. A heart of repentance and confession. Money is a real idol for many in this community, isn't it? It's very, very easy to give, but only in a way that we can afford to give without us really having to rely on God and to trust in him. And if God's convicting you of that, then maybe that's an area to really pray about. Um, And we can go on. But the point is there are lots of different things that can stop us really believing what, uh, living out what we really believe. If we believe that we need to be reliant on God, there are all sorts of things that can stop us. And we need to take responsibility as individuals and then corporately as a church to help encourage each other with our self-reliance. I want you to just turn over the page in your handout. We're going to look at some lessons we can learn from this story of Gideon, which will really, I hope, address some of these things we're thinking about tonight. And as Simon has just shared, the first one you see there in chapter 6, 25 to 27, is repentance. Let me read the story. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 25. That same night, the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal. Baal was one of the great gods of of the Canaanite lands that many people worshipped and God's people turned to. Tear down your father's altar to the Baal and cut down the Asherah pole. Asherah was another god 
And they set up these kind of poles, these altars before Asherah. Cut these things down, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Use the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offering the second bull as a burnt offering. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of God's people coming before the Lord in repentance. The reason that they are in a mess is because they've turned their eyes away from the living God. So he says, if you really want to see me at work in your life, start with prayer. I wonder how many of us, when we pray, uh, pray in a sense to a God like this, our kind of Aladdin's genie. When life gets tough, we cry out, God, help me. And it's a good thing to do. But when life's going well, we're very slow to pray. I don't need God. I've got a secure bank balance. I've got a happy home. I'm okay. And so often we treat God a bit like a genie in a bottle and we rub it when we're in trouble. But God is the God of the universe and he wants us to be coming before him each and every day. One of the the verses we reflected on as elders on Saturday morning when we met was the verse in James chapter 5 verse 16 that speaks of the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Um, And as we were looking at that verse together, there's a main way to understand the word righteousness in the Bible. It's talking about the righteousness that that the living God gives us through Jesus Christ. I can be in a right standing before God because of what Christ has done on the cross for me. But there's another sense in which the the word righteousness can be used, which is the idea of my heart being open before the Lord. And as David prays, search me, O Lord, and see if there is anything within my heart that doesn't honor you. It's this idea of, am I deliberately withholding any part of my life from God, or am I giving it all to him? And we can't expect our prayers to be powerful if we haven't repented. If, in a way, there's areas of our life we will not give to God and then say, but God, I'm coming to you and I really believe that you're powerful and I want you to answer my prayers. Why should God answer our prayers when we don't give him our hearts? And that's the lesson he's trying to teach God's people here. Why should I answer your prayer and deliver you from your enemies when you haven't given me your heart? One of the things I've been reading and thinking about recently in terms of seeing the Spirit of God come upon a church or community in real power, kind of revival, one of the, the common marks is corporate repentance, where the, God's people as a whole have a real heart of repentance. And perhaps we're not always good at that. So I want to encourage us as a church and as individuals to pray that prayer that David prayed, search me, O Lord, to see if there's an offensive way within me. Lord, if there is something in my life that is more important to me than you, show me. And please teach me to have a repentant heart. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Uh, then come to chapter 6, verse 34. Not only do we want to learn to be repentant before God, but we need to be strengthened by the Spirit of God. I love this verse, verse 34. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Uh, just last Sunday evening, I was walking back from the evening service. I was with Jeff Wood. And we paused at the Gifford Way um, Friars Furlong Junction just so he could head right to his house and I could turn left to mine. And we were just been talking about the evening service and praying together. And uh, we were reflecting, saying, as we look out in this beautiful evening across this beautiful village, where for many people at least it appears that life is sorted, prim and proper gardens, nice homes, healthy bank balances, the spiritual reality for our community in general is that it's utterly spiritually dead. And we can look at a very lovely, prim and proper village and go, isn't it a wonderful place to live? And it is. But from a spiritual point of view, God probably looks down along Crendon and sees it like 
Ezekiel saw the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. Spiritually dead. It's wonderful, absolutely wonderful to have a large number of people gathering on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening at church. It's wonderful. But 240 or so people. This village has over 2,000 people in it who don't know their left hand from their right, who are godless, without God, without hope in the world. As we walked on this beautiful walk last Sunday night, I remember saying to Jeff, this place is spiritually dead. And that's got to bother us. And so we need, as Gideon needed, the spirit of God to come upon him to strengthen him, to show him some of the spiritual realities. The spirit of God is a wonderful gift that God gives to his people. And we need the spirit of God to give us eyes to see this world as he sees it. So repentance and strengthening. And then we see in, in chapter 7, obedience. If, if Wellesley could read chapter 7, verses 1 to 8, please. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them, in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands. Or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. When God's people were obedient to him under Gideon, uh, the extraordinary thing is it led to incredible weakness, didn't it? Uh, just keep your finger there. Just look back to chapter 6, verse 6. In that verse, God's people cried out for help. They cried out to be delivered from their enemies. And this is, I think, where God has a wonderful sense of humor. They're crying out for a deliverer. Who does God send them in verse 8? A prophet. God's people want some great Goliath-like warrior who's just going to come down and rally and cry, go into the, into the valley and destroy all the Midianites. God sends them a prophet. Probably someone who reads loads, who lives in a library, who probably looks very scrawny, weak and pathetic. What is he doing? Think about why God's people have got in a mess. They've got in a mess because as we've seen, they have not listened to the word of God. What they need is not some great warrior on a horse. What they need is the word of God. And so this scrawny little bookworm of a prophet, perhaps, comes to them with the word of God. But that is what they most need. But when God's people here are obedient to him, God then takes a pretty big army, 32,000 men, and whittles it down to 300. 
If God's people were crying out for deliverance when they had 32,000 men saying, this is a pretty tiny army compared to all the people we've got to destroy, how will Gideon and his people have felt when the army's down to 300? And this isn't 300 like in the film, real warriors. This is 300 weak people. As God's people are obedient to him, he weakens them. But he weakens them for a reason. And why was that reason? Go back to chapter 6, verse 10. What had he said? I am the Lord your God. There's a very real reason that God calls his people, he calls us to be obedient to him. Because as we're obedient to him, often being obedient to the Lord God causes us to feel incredibly weak. Because he calls us to do things we can't in and of ourselves do. As I stood on the corner of that road with, with Jeff last week, my heart was breaking for the people in this community who don't know the Lord. I cannot save them. I cannot convince them. And nor can you. But the living God can. But do we believe that? I mean, how many, how many times in your life do you think like me, prayer is a waste of time? On, on a busy day, when I, I've got a list of jobs to do, if I plough through my list of jobs, I've got something to show for it at the end of the day. People see me being busy. If I tuck myself away in a quiet room and nobody sees it, and I'm on my knees for an hour praying, it feels incredibly weak. It feels like a complete waste of time. You don't see the results so frequently. You don't feel like it's making any difference. But the point is, when I'm on my knees praying, I'm engaging with spiritual heavenly realities and it is making a difference. Many people who are sitting here in this church are the answers to people in this church's prayer. And if you've come to faith in this church, you don't know the people who prayed in quiet for you. And I'm no doubt when those people were praying for you, they felt weak and pathetic and felt like it was a waste of time. But God used those prayers. And not only is God using those prayers in ways you can't see, but the very act of praying is teaching you and I humility. It's teaching us obedience. It's teaching us that we cannot change this world in and of ourselves in our own strength. Why did God whittle down 32,000 men to 300? It was simply to teach one lesson. The Lord God was going to win the victory, not the might of the Israelites. On your handout there, you've got a few examples of unanswered prayer. We're not going to look at them now, but I'd love you to take them away. If you feel discouraged sometimes with unanswered prayer, don't ever feel like you're alone. There are people in the scriptures who faced unanswered prayer, and I'd love you to take these verses away and reflect on them. Grapple with them. Grapple with God in them. Because they're there in the Bible to teach us that so often when I feel my prayers are being unanswered, maybe God is answering them, but perhaps in a different way, perhaps with different timing, but he wants us to continue in prayer. And finally, come to verses 7 to 22. We're not going to read them all together. Uh, reliance upon God. Uh, I read this week, has anyone here heard of William McCullough? Famous for a revival in Scotland in a place called Cambuslang. I don't know if you've heard of William McCullough or Cambuslang. Sounds like a fantastic place. In 1742, there was a revival in this very random place in Scotland. When you read about William McCullough, he was an incredibly ordinary man. They nicknamed him the Ale Minister because every time he got up to speak in church, he was so uneloquent and so boring to listen to that everyone went down to the local tavern to have a drink instead. He was a very weak, humanly speaking, pathetic individual, but he spent time on his knees in prayer and God took this very, very weak William McCullough, the Ale Minister, and used him for this incredible revival in Scotland in 1742. 
something else I read this week, prayer as work. I wonder if you've ever thought about prayer being work. Uh, This writer says, I am afraid that we do not put real work into prayer and that we don't therefore put our trust in the power of God when it's a question of carrying on and carrying forward our work. And for that reason, our Christian work becomes so strenuous and so exhausting. Caveat to that, the Christian life will always be tiring. It will be hard work. We're called to hard work. But there's definitely a point in that quote, isn't there? Sometimes we make the Christian life harder because we strive ourselves rather than relying on the infinite resources of an amazing God. And so as we look at reliance upon God, the impossible situation, have a look at chapter 7, verse 7. 300 men. And then flick forward to chapter 7, verse 12. The Midianites and Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples have set it on the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. It's an impossible situation. God's people go absolutely no way. But now look, finally, last verse we'll look at together. Skip forward to chapter 7 and we'll have read verses 21 and 22. What's the little surprise? While each man held his position round the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord God caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittar, towards Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel Mehaloah near Tabath. What's the surprise in those verses? What do God's people have to do? Don't you think that's just funny? There's a bit of humor in here. And it's amazing. They stand. And God causes his enemies to turn upon themselves. Yes, later on in chapter 8, they pursue God's people, God's enemies. But the point is here, after all that we've seen at, Gideon, no doubt, with all his troops, is standing there quivering. We've got 300 of us. How will we ever do it? They blow their trumpet and God says, watch me. They don't actually do anything. He goes ahead of them. And in their faithfulness to him, he wins the victory. And so as we think of these different responses we reflected on tonight, our need to repent, our need to be obedient before God, our need to be strengthened by his spirit, our need to have genuine heartfelt reliance upon the Lord. Go back to week one and think about what we learned about Satan. He's described as the accuser, the father of lies. And one of his greatest lies is that God is not great. The famous atheist Christopher Hitchens wrote a book with the same title. And sometimes the devil will work in our life and he will whisper in your ear, God is not great. So don't worry about relying on him. Just keep battling on. And often we swallow that lie. But the wonderful thing about prayer is that it reorientates our heart. It lifts our eyes to the living God. And many of you are living testimony to that. I've really been convicted by this in a very powerful way in the last few months. As a church, we will not drift into fervent prayer. Nobody ever drifts into fervent prayer. We have to decide we want to be a prayerful people and then ask the living God to help us to be a prayerful people. Which means that we need to plan to pray and we need to give our best hours to prayer. I don't know what that looks like for you in your life with all the different legitimate pressures you have. But do you give your best time, or at least some of your best time, to prayer? 
because we will not drift into fervent prayer as God's people, but we need to be a people of fervent prayer. I was encouraged this week, little article in the Barnabas Aid magazine. Here is a pastor who lives and works in Southeast Asia. He prayed for 65 years for a Bible. That's twice as long as I've been alive for. He prayed for 65 years. And this little article brought me to tears when I read it earlier in the week because after 65 years, he was blessed with a Bible. One Bible. I've got seven in my house. Here is a man who continued to persevere in prayer. He never drifted into perseverant prayer. He planned to pray and God blessed his prayer and answered his prayer. I think our greatest struggle with prayer is our spirit of prayer. It's having our hearts right. These things are legitimate things that make prayer difficult, but the root of them is our heart. And what God taught God's people in the story of Gideon is to whittle away, strip away all of their self-reliance to a point where they go, there's no way we can win the victory. And then he said, watch me. And that is my real prayer for this church, that he would strip away and then we would watch him get to work. Uh, We're not going to look at it now, but if you look at your third page, this is really for something to take away. I wanted to ground tonight in the work of the Lord Jesus, but I didn't want to rush this. So I'd love you to take away this away as your way of responding. I want you to look at the life of Jesus and see in his life, where can you be encouraged? Where can you be rebuked? Where can you be challenged in the prayers of Jesus? And what you see is that Jesus planned to pray Jesus persisted in prayer. Jesus battled with unanswered prayer. All the things that we find difficult, the Lord Jesus struggled with himself. And as you look at these things, I pray that they would lift your eyes to a God who answered the Lord Jesus' prayers and who will answer your prayers. And then in the gray box at the bottom, you, I'd love you just to, as you reflect, write down one thing that under God you want to ask him to help you with as you battle to pray in a world full of self-reliance. As we close, and Neil and Liz are going to come up to lead us in prayer, I want to draw our attention to two verses. Have a look at chapter 8, verse 23. I puzzled over these verses for a while this week, and then it came to me why they're there. Uh, Gideon, under God, wins this great victory for his people. And notice what Gideon tells God's people when they want him to rule over them. They want him to be their king. He says, verse 23, Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That needs to be our prayer, that the Lord would rule over us and that he would be our strength. But then notice the warning just a few verses later in verse 27. It's a wonderful declaration by Gideon, but then what happens in 27? Gideon made the gold into an ephod. That's a linen tunic. He sewed these precious stones into this linen tunic, which he placed in Ophra, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Why in this story of great victory do you get this kind of sad little bit at the end? It's left there just as a little warning because we'll all go from here, I'm sure, nodding and going, yes, we need to be more prayer dependent. Yes, we need to be more reliant on God. But here's the reality of the human heart. Seconds after I declare that and you declare that tonight and we leave here, how easy would it be for us to turn back to self-dependence? And the reason that the book of Judges has these repeated cycles of rebellion is to remind us that without the living God, we are nothing.
So I pray this will have encouraged us. And as we've prayed every week, for every look at the devil and his work is to stop us praying, let us gaze at God. And the more that we become a prayerful people, the more power we will see unleashed in this community. And that is when, friends, we will see lives changed by Christ. We're going to pray about that now. And Neil and Liz are going to come and lead us.